the book of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheetal, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of their Lord, their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord, their God, had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the people of, of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong. O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more make shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. 
Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. May God bless the reading of his word. So my eldest son, Ben, lives in Chicago, and until recently, he was living with a group of Christian friends from college and just from his network. They were, a group of them were living in a refugee, essentially what is a refugee community. It was a low-income housing, and World Relief has a headquarters in that area. So World Relief looked for a place that they could afford to resettle all these refugees, and for the refugees, it's maybe a step up from refugee camp, so they haven't been too... They haven't been complaining about it much. And my son and his friends moved in partly to live together in kind of a Christian community in their various apartments, joined together, but also to have some kind of ministry to these uh, refugees and immigrants and ex-convicts, you know, people who are kind of left behind by life. So for the last four and a half years, he's been living there and engaged in life with their neighbors. Uh, undocumented foreign workers often need somebody who's actually legally in the country to help them navigate some things that are too sensitive, whether it be school for their kids or various interactions with the government. Uh, The police would come by regularly, and the police were happy to have people who were fluent in English help them to negotiate with the residents of the community. Uh, A lot of the people were poor, obviously. All the people were poor. Some of them were quite rough. Uh, particularly the ex-cons. And as a community, my son and his friends share their lives together. The kids would come into their apartment and play in hordes. Uh, they, they had a garden together. You know, my son's an environmentalist. So, and a lot of these pe- refugees came from farming communities overseas. So they had a garden together in the community. They'd help tutor the kids, help one or two of them get into college and navigate that process. When, one of the, when two of the people living in the community had a 
marriage. They, when they got married, they went off to the church for the wedding, and then they came back to the community to celebrate. And the community threw them the reception. Not the usual choice, but there you go. Now, sometimes, as a result, it was a little bit awkward when Ben would come back and visit us. He's coming back again soon. I think this time we won't have to do this. But whenever he came back to visit us, he'd have to put all of his bags, all of his belongings, in maybe like three large black trash bags. He'd get undressed in the garage, and then he'd put all of his stuff and all of his clothes in these trash bags and leave them out in the yard, as provided it was summertime, so that the heat would bake the bags and would kill the bed bugs. Because he regularly ended up with bed bugs. These kids coming in, you know, would leave behind uh, unwanted guests. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to my son, but it's going to cost me $10,000 or more to get rid of bed bugs if we get them. Uh, he just kind of lived with it or to do what he could to remedy it from time to time. So, you know, his life was part of this community, and the community was part of his life. It wasn't such a welcome community for the town, though, you see. It was an upper-middle-class town with a very low-income housing and a really rough area. So the town rezoned it. So it would be more suitable for some corporation to come in and, and build shopping center or that kind of thing to improve the standard. Because all the town is doing is spending a lot of money educating these children while their parents live in you know, low-income housing. It's really hard for the town people to justify the tax and to be happy about it. So the town rezoned it so they could develop it into shopping centers. So my uh, son and his friends got together and went to the press and gave publicity to the initiative. And they also invited the mayor over to meals and to visit them a few times to see what the community was like. And so the town realized that this is not such a bad thing after all. And they moved back, they rescinded their attempts to redevelop it. The owners, themselves immigrants, at that point, decided they'd just been in the business too long and couldn't uh, do the work anymore. You know, it was just too, too grueling. So the, so the owners of the complex, uh, over 100 units, sold out to a developer who then came in and renovated the apartments one by one and raised the rents, doubled the rents. So one by one, the refugee families had to go find somewhere else to live. So after four and a half years, my son looks around and says, you know, in a way, it's a failure. Because now the community's all split up, and many of the Christians who have been involved in it have all gone their own way, and the, the, the people have gone on their own way. So how, you know, what's the results of the last four and a half years? Touching some lives, but not achieving nearly what they had hoped for. Now, that's pretty much a microcosm of the situation that Israel was facing in Haggai's day from the passage we look at today. And it's a situation that we will face often enough if we actually give ourselves some ministry. If we take some significant initiative for God that challenges us 
there's a reasonable chance that it'll fail. And there's a better than reasonable chance that even if it succeeds, it'll succeed only through hard work and through some periods of discouragement. Now, we turn to Haggai with this in mind because they were facing far worse discouragement than ours, we'll see. And Haggai, basically the whole book, only two chapters, took place over only four months. Haggai spends four months telling them why they shouldn't give up. Even though their situation looks impossible, why they should keep persevering. Why they should be satisfied with lowered expectations, even though God's at work. Why they should keep up, even though they face disappointment, discouragement, and hardship. That's the message of Haggai. And it's a message for us when we give our lives and ourselves to ministry. The first lesson, well, basically Haggai will give them five reasons why. Now, we may not get through all five because I'm going to end on time. If we don't get through all five, it doesn't matter because you all know how to use the web. And I will have on there daily devotionals based on this same passage. They'll be on the web just to give you an incentive, or, oh no, to help you decide whether you should bother clicking or not clicking, I put two, the first two days are in the, um, in the bulletin this morning. Now, don't go looking at the bulletin. I mean, it's a terrible thing to refer you to bulletin. First two days of the devotion are in the bulletin. However, I will, this is actually, what's in the bulletin is finishing up last week. So by, by Wednesday, the devotionals for this week will be up, and we'll review much of the same territory. The first lesson that we learn from Haggai. We learn from the man rather, before we even get to the book. The story of Haggai begins in Ezra. Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6 references Haggai. And this is an unusual event for us in Scripture. We rarely see one prophet mentioned in another book. So we learn about Haggai, first of all, in the book of Ezra, which we were looking at last week. Ezra chapter 4. They'd rebuilt the altar. Israel had come back from exile. They were living in the land. Other people were living around them that weren't Jews. Israel needs to worship God in order to stay in the land. They want to honor God for bringing them back to the land, reciprocate his blessings to them. They want to worship God. They build an altar. But you don't want just an altar. You want a temple to surround it. And they started building a temple. And their neighbors said... Uh, we'll help you. We worship the same God. But the Israelites, no, 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 no. You see, sure, their neighbors who weren't Jewish worshipped Jehovah. But they didn't worship Jehovah alone. They were immigrants themselves to Palestine. They'd been forced in by a, a conquering empire. When they came in, they would bring all their old gods with them. And now they're in new land, and, and you've got to worship the God over the land you're in. So they would worship all their own gods, the Canaanite gods, and they would worship the Jehovah as well, just to be safe. So they said, we'll help you build this temple. And Israel said, no, we worship the one true God, and know him alone, and you can't work with us. And they were offended. And so they dis- uh, sought to stop the building of the temple. Chapter 4 in the book of Ezra. The people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed the government officials 
to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And they eventually sent a letter to the emperor saying, do you allow these Jews to rebuild the temple? They're doing this. They have a history of rebellion. They're building a temple. They'll probably mount another rebellion. And so the king sent his reply. Issue an order to these men to stop work so that the city will not be rebuilt until I order. Do not let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests. And the letter came to Palestine and the surrounding peoples went up to the Israelites as they were building their temple and forced them to stop. And then we read in the book of Ezra, Thus the work of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem came to a standstill for roughly 15 years. Work stopped on the temple. Until Ezra chapter 5 verse 1. Work had stopped because the emperor ordered it to stop. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel and Joshua set to work to rebuild the house of God. This is what Ezra tells us. You hear what happened? Here's the first reason not to build that temple. Because the government forbids it. The government that conquered us. The government that allowed us to come back. The government that rules over us. The government says we can't build the temple. And so Israel stops building for 15, 16 years. Because the government said stop building. And Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah the prophet, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem and said, in essence, it really doesn't matter what the government said. They're not the final adjudicators. God is. The government says, don't build. God says, build. You build. And so Zerubbabel, the ruler, the governor, and Joshua, the priest, set to work to rebuild the house of the Lord, because God said to. And this is the first lesson we learn. We don't ignore the government. We don't intentionally antagonize the government. But the government is not the final adjudicators over the people of God. God is. Now, now in our case, it, it doesn't apply to building a new building. We're just about finished with this new phase, uh, 151. We did apply for government per, a permit to build that building. We will ask for a permit, again, to, to use the building. It's not like we should just build anything we want anywhere we want. In their day, it meant building a temple. For us... In our phase of salvation history, it's no longer building buildings, because that's not where God dwells. For us, in the third phase of salvation history, it's spreading the gospel, sharing Christ, engaging in world missions. And when governments in Asia or governments in the Middle East say you're not allowed to do that here, 
We don't deliberately antagonize governments. We don't seek confrontation. But no political government is the final adjudicator in any place over what the people of God do. And so God calls us to mission. And we engage in mission. Where it's legal, where it's not legal. The emperor said, issue an order to these men to stop work. And God spoke to Haggai and Zechariah 15 years later and told them, issue an order to these people to begin work again. And they did. Now, for us, this is, uh, our lives are going to be much, are always much easier than this. Because the government is relatively cooperative, right? Now, we see some recent legislation. Things may get a little tighter, a little harder for us long-term in this country. But whatever we face will be minor compared to what other countries have faced throughout time. And whatever difficulty we face, the truth is still here. The government is not the final adjudicator of what we do, who we tell about Jesus, how we live for Jesus. God is the final adjudicator. We get a second lesson from Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, oh, well, let me tell you why we're jumping into Haggai for the moment. Let me take a little tangent here. Let me go over here, all right, so you know it's not part of the sermon, central sermon, all right. Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6, they mentioned Haggai and Zechariah. So we're going to jump into Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai, uh, Ezra, the book is named after Ezra, but Ezra does not appear in Ezra 1 to 6. Ezra's not around for 60 more years. Maybe 80 years. In any event, he's not there. The book is named after him. He gets the credit. He's not there. Haggai and Zechariah are there. Zerubbabel and Joshua are there. So we'll jump into Haggai this week and Zechariah the next couple of weeks. And then, whoops, going to stay here. And then we'll go back to Ezra. Because now Ezra shows up in, in uh, chapters 7 to 10. And then after that, Nehemiah. And then finally, Malachi. So we'll take it in the order, chronological order. It's grouped differently now, but we'll take it in chronological order over the next few weeks. And so we turn to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai is one of the few Bible books that is dates explicitly. So we can pretty much accurately date down to the day of the month, of the year. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, remember Ezra had said that the building stopped until the second year of King Darius. And now Haggai starts up. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak. This is not the Joshua you know from earlier in the Old Testament. This is a new Joshua. Uh, Jesus' name is also Joshua. Okay, So Joshua is a very common Old Testament name, a Jewish name. The word of the Lord came to uh, prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel and Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The temple is no longer being built. And here's the second reason. Not just because the government said you can't. Here's the second reason. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And the Lord, word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled homes while the house of God remains a ruin? 
Now, let's be sympathetic for a moment, because Haggai is not real sympathetic, but let's be a little sympathetic. Because you will know this experience. Many of you are first-generation Americans. Many of you, your parents came over as immigrants. Now, we're a lot better off here in this church than, say, BCEC down in Chinatown. In this, in one sense, our families are better off. Most of our, you know, most of the older generation that came here came as grad students or professionals. They lived at a higher socioeconomic level. Yeah, they faced some harassment or some racism or, or whatever. But, but they lived in a, you know, it's not like they came in here as doctors, knew no English, and had to start working in the uh, restaurants in Chinatown. Or it's not like they came, they were laborers in China and came here and worked on the railroads back in the 1800s. Most of us don't come from that kind of stock. But even then, even though our parents came as grad students, you know, they still didn't have financial security or vocational security. So what was their first item on their agenda? Study hard. Work hard. Get a good job. Buy a good house in a prosperous suburb. And what do you suppose they're going to say if you say, you know... I feel God calling me to go help the people in the refugee camps in Chad. Or, <laughs> or, you know, I feel God calling me to go back to China and spread the gospel. Or Cambodia or Laos. They went to so much trouble to give you safety and prosperity and affluence and good schools. And you walk away from that. It's just what was going on here in Haggai. This, these were first-generation immigrants, only they weren't grad students. They were mostly impoverished in, a, in exile. And then they come back to their own land, and they've got no money. They've got no homes. They've got no crops. The first thing they have to do, well, the first thing they started to do was build the temple. And then, got, and then the emperor said, no, you can't do that. So, so, okay, then they built their homes. And after 15 years, Haggai says to them, or the Lord says to Haggai, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled homes, you know, wood paneling on the walls, nice places? Is it time for you to have a nice house while God's house lies in ruins? Now again, the lesson for us is not about building fancy churches. Although I do think if we're going to have, we don't need to have a church at all to worship God. Although, let's face it, if we do have a church... It's really awkward if our homes are better renovated than the churches or better maintained than the churches. We don't ever want to get to that point, right? If our home's fancier than the church, either we need a less fancy home or we need a more fancy church. You can decide which way you want to go with it. It doesn't worry me either way. But I think it may be an issue. But this is not really about buildings. This is, again, about how we spend our lives.
Your parents will rightly worry about you if you give up prosperity to go serve the poor in America or to go share the gospel overseas. They'll rightly worry about you. And they may say, well, the time has not yet come. Get a job. Get a house. Provide for your families. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while the work of God remains a ruin? And it's not just about going overseas or going and serving among the poor in this country. It's also about ministry. You know how life is so busy. At least from the time you're in high school, cramming for exams so you can get into that college, and then the ECA, and you've got to be well-rounded, which really means overworked and exhausted. So you've got to do all the ECA, and you've got to do the sports, and you've got to do the studies. And there's really not a whole lot of time for fellowship, hardly any time for worship, and no time for ministry. Or maybe you finally get into college and... Oh, mm-hmm. Maybe you get a little breathing space in college, or, or you get your first job and you have a little breathing space, but then the kids come. And if you ha- don't know it not by now because you haven't had kids yet, you know, once you get the kids, there's no time for anything. The time has not yet come to re-engage in ministry. And the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you and your families to be living in comfort and ease and rich life while the work of God remains a ruin? Haggai gives a third reason in chapter 2, 1 to 9, a third reason why they should not give up. Chapter 2, verses 1. 1 to 9, which I will find in just a moment or two. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Who of you is left that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? Remember last week when we looked at Ezra, what happened when they finally built the temple? When they finally got the temple constructed, finished, after this time we're talking about now, but when they finally got the temple finished, what happened? People were celebrating. The new new immigrants were celebrating. And the people who are old enough to have remembered the old temple were weeping. Because it was, you celebrate because it's finished, weep because it's nothing compared to what it used to be. And so Haggai addresses that. Which of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? And this is parallel to some of the experiences we can have in ministry. A lot of people are recruited to missions with the hope that we're going to change the world for Christ. Just like a lot of people start their careers hoping they're going to make a massive impact. And what's the key precipitator of midlife crisis for 
for dominant, aggressive men in their early 40s as they finally get to the point where they see how, what they've attained thus far, how far it sh- falls short of what they had hoped for. And they can pretty well predict, by the time you're in your 40s, you can pretty well predict what you, where you're going to be in your 60s. And even in this climate, in this culture, a lot of people hit a midlife crisis then. I'm not going to be as significant as I thought. Or if you go into missions, you hit 40. And you've been working at this for 15 years, and you can pretty well predict what it's going to look like. Maybe in 15 more years, and you think, this is all I have to show for my life. Which of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem like nothing to you? And discouragement can set in when we compare our hopes with our reality. Discouragement can set in and lead to impotence and just a refusal to go any further. So what did Haggai, what did God through Haggai say to them? Be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord God Almighty. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. When we look around us and don't see the results we expect, this is God's word to us as it was to them. Be strong. Be confident. Be courageous. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. It might not be as spectacular as you hope, but I'm in it, God says to them and to us. Don't give up. Persevere. Then we see a a fourth reason why we should keep going. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 and 19. They've restarted their work. And that day that they restart their work in the temple, God comes to them and says, Give careful thought to this from this day on. From this day on, he says, give careful thought. Give careful thought, he says, a third time. From this day on. Give, look around, he says. You've been struggling financially. You've been struggling socially. You've been struggling economically. But he says, you've started to work in the door. From this day on, give careful thought. Watch what happens now. They started to work and God had promised that he was going to bless them. That the struggles of their lives were going to improve. That their lives were going to improve. The message of it is this, is that God honors obedience. God honors service. I don't think we can take from this that if we're, you know, lower middle class, or, and then we start serving God, then we're going to become middle class, and if we're middle class, then we're going to become upper middle class. It's not such a universal thing as that. But this is the assurance that we can all share. Three times he says it here. Give careful thought to this. From this day on, God says, I will bless you. From this day on, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. From this day on, I will bless you. God honors obedience and ministry. God takes pleasure in our service. Even when it's not 
has a, doesn't have enough results to satisfy us. God takes pleasure in our service. And the fifth reason comes, Haggai offers in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Notice how three times he's just said, from this day on. But he tacitly acknowledges that this life will never be enough to satisfy us. Whatever we do for God in this life will never be enough to satisfy us because it's still a fallen world. The end result is not written in this life. From this day on, he says, things will improve. From this day on, from this day on, watch, give careful attention. It's going to get better. But he tacitly acknowledges that this day, this period, this life is never enough to know the final outcome. Because in chapter 2, verse 21, he says to Haggai, tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones. I will shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms that dominate you and oppress you now. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, you see the contrast? From this day on, from this day on, from this day on, things will get incrementally better. But on that day, it's going to be a whole new story. On that day, I will shake the heavens and the earth. On that day, I will overthrow empires and emperors. I will shatter the powers that oppose my people. On that day, all of us will be satisfied with what God does. Now, we can have more confidence in this than Haggai could. Or than Ezra could or than any of them could. Because after a period of three years, in the bleakest day of history, Jesus was crucified, and in the aftermath of his death, his disciples gave up. They sat in an upper room where they had last met with Jesus, and their doors were locked for fear of the Jews, the Gospel of John tells us. Three years for nothing. Three years and their lives were in jeopardy. Three years and only negative results. And they sat in the, huddled together in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the authorities. Then Jesus came in and said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now go, I send you. We know what Haggai couldn't. Because that day that he looked forward to, when he, God would overthrow royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kings, that day, has started. 
That day has not yet finished. We're not yet even at noon. But that day has dawned. And we're living in the middle of that day. Still things aren't as glorious as we want. Still our results are not as great as we want. Still work is harder. The ministry is harder. Results are slower than what we want. Still, in a sense, we live in the days of Haggai. But in a greater sense, we don't live there anymore. Because Jesus has risen. And the powers of the world have been overthrown. And he's told us what is coming. That day has started. And soon, just in a little while, that day will reach its climax. We can believe Haggai because we can believe Jesus. And we can persevere in our ministries through discouraging times, not just because of Haggai, but also because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, your word is true. We can build our lives upon it. We ask that you would grant us courage by your word, by your spirit, that we would build our lives upon it. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.